Ladies and gentlemen, members of the Stanford faculty and student body, and honored guests visiting us from India. I am David Mulford, Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution and former United States Ambassador to India, 2004 until 2009. It is my pleasure to welcome you here today to the Hoover Institution and to Stanford University to take part in what is the first of many such events to come here and in India, focused on strengthening the partnership between the United States and India. Under the direction of Hoover Director, Secretary Condoleezza Rice, the Hoover Institution has launched a new program for the purpose of strengthening uh, the bonds and ties between the United States and India. This includes our people-to-people -people ties, our business and economic ties, and our geopolitical and security ties. The United States and India share much in common, most of it, importantly, a commitment to democratic government that guarantees and advances the freedom and prosperity of our people. Today, we are honored to be here with Hoover Director and former U.S. Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, and Tata Sons Chairman, Mr. N. Chandrasekharan. As many of you know, Tata Sons is one of the most important companies in India. The promoter and holding company of the Tata Group, an industrial conglomerate which is a dominant force in steel, automobiles, technology services, electronics, energy, and most recently, the airline Air India, among many other businesses. The Tata Group has a market capitalization of over $330 billion. Mr. Chandra, as we all refer to him, arose through the ranks at Tata by leading as CEO of Tata Consultancy Services from 2009 until 2017, and succeeded in making TCS India's largest and most successful IT services company. In 2017, he was appointed chairman of Tata Sons. He also chairs the boards of Tata Steel, Tata Power, and Air India, and Tata Consultancy Services. One of the highest awards he was given by the Indian government, the Padma Bushman Award, uh, he received recently for distinguished service in the field of trade and industry. Secretary Rice, of course, needs no introduction here. I would, however, like to highlight the importance of her role during the presidency of George W. Bush in transforming U.S.-India relations into what they are today. Secretary Rice recognized that India was becoming one of the world's largest and most important economies, requiring vast energy supply and energy security to reach its eventual potential. It was through her leadership 
that we, um, and tenacity. During her tenure, both as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State, to work with the Government of India, the United States Congress, international energy organizations, and the 45-member Nuclear Suppliers Group of Nations to bring to fruition the U.S.-India Civil Nuclear Agreement, which opened up India's nuclear energy industry to meet its future energy demands. Mr. Chandra arrived yesterday from India, bringing with him a distinguished delegation of both business and government leaders. Over the next day and a half, faculty from Stanford, the Hoover Institution, and leaders from American Enterprise will meet with the Tata delegation to discuss matters of great importance to our two countries, including security and uh, economy and energy. It is a great honor and my privilege to welcome them here today and to have Tata Sons as a Hoover Institution partner in this, in this historic endeavor. Thank you very much. I also wish to just take a moment to hold up a most remarkable book written by uh, Chandra. And it is a really brilliantly informative book. And there will be some out and around for you. We hope there's enough. But it is something that is very important to read if you want to understand what's happening in India and why. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, I want to start, though, by just thanking uh, David Mulford, first of all, for his extraordinary service as uh, U.S. Ambassador uh, to India, and uh, also for taking charge of this initiative uh, on India. Um, I also want to recognize uh, one of our overseers, Claudia Huntington, who uh, has uh, been one of our overseer supporters for this initiative. And it's, it's very exciting because uh, this is a time when uh, countries that share values are asking themselves hard questions about what's going on in our own countries, uh, what's going on in the world, uh, how we bring technology to the service of society. And there's no one better able to talk about uh, those issues uh, than you. And so we're going to turn to those issues. And then after we've had a chance to talk, you get a chance to ask questions. So get your questions ready. I'm a professor. I'll call on someone if nobody raises their hand. So please get your questions ready. Uh, but before I talk about those extremely important issues, you are a marathoner. Is that right? Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about being a marathoner and the mentality that it takes to run 26 plus uh, miles? And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about how your experience as a marathoner has prepared you for some of the things that you've faced uh, in life. But I've always been fascinated by people that can, can train in that way. So do you want to share a few secrets with us? Thank you, thank you, Secretary. Uh, let me also first say uh, thank David, uh, because this whole initiative was uh, conceptualized by David and uh, Ratan Tata. They worked together in putting this together, but uh, COVID kind of delayed it, so we were doing it virtually for the last couple of years. So um, I want to thank David 
for uh, thinking through, thinking through this and uh, getting this off the ground. Um, I think I took up uh, marathon running uh, not because I was a natural runner. I picked up running only at the age of 44 because my uh, family had a big diabetic history. So I had to do something different. So I picked up uh, diabetic. And firstly, it helped me reverse diabetes. So I'm, I'm, I'm normal without medicine, So, which is, a, which is a great place to start. But then when I started running, I realized how much addicted that I've become to running and how much I enjoy running. Uh, probably I would have been a runner and, and, and gone to sports if I had started early. Um, but certainly it has changed my character. I feel that I've become uh, a lot more long-term oriented, orientated and patient, observant, um, better listener, I would say. <laughs> so, and also, I kind of feel that uh, marathon teaches that if you want to perform anywhere, you've got to be fit, uh, which is so important for, uh, for uh, um, business. The other thing I lately realized is that um, in sports, uh, be it marathon or something else, you train 90, 95% of the time and you perform to 3% of your time. To run a four hour race, you put 400 hours of training. But in business, we put up show all the time and do very little training. So, <laughs> so I feel that um, training is a lot more important if you want to really put up a good show. Well, you have been uh, with the Tata Group for over 30 years and uh, you've been in a number of roles. Uh, you've seen uh, the growth of the Tata Group, uh, you know, an iconic uh, company uh, in India, but not just in India, an iconic company uh, in the world. Uh, now you're chairman of uh, the Tata Sons, and I, I would like you to share a little bit on the reflection of, of how in that 30 years uh, you've seen the company change, its relationship to the society, and perhaps from there we can go a little bit into how India has evolved uh, over that 30 years. I think uh, uh Tata Group is really a most iconic company and uh, more than 100, 150 years, uh, they have pioneered so many things. Think of uh, putting a hydropower plant in 1903 and uh, think of a steel mill in 1907. Um, coming to Pittsburgh to find an architect who can build a steel mill in India. So there are so many things to talk about. Uh, but the most important thing is um, the societal impact was deeply ingrained in the ethos of the group because our founder said what comes from people should go multiple times over to people. So it got ingrained in the, in the group. Um, for people here, I think just to, just to give you this, the, the breadth of the group, the group is in a plethora of industries, steel, motors, automobile, energy, uh, financial services, technology, um, retail, consumer, consumer products and consumer goods. Um, then we are into telecom, we are into uh, manufacturing of uh, different types of things, 
and we are into airlines, we are into hotels. Now we are getting into <coughs> semiconductors, we are getting into batteries, we are getting into. So it's a very, very vast, vast group. I started uh, my career in 2007, uh, uh, sorry, 1986 um, as a graduate engineer in uh, TCS, which was uh, at that time um, about four or five million dollars, 27 crores in, in Indian, Indian, Indian rupees. Um, so I've seen that company uh, grow from that to revenues of 25 billion today and a market cap of 200 billion. So I think it's the most uh, valuable experience I could have got because it just gave us the opportunity to work with uh, not only different industries, but also work with the industry leaders um, in every segment. Um, probably work for the top five companies in every segment in the United States. I used to work a lot for Jeff, for example. So that gave me a perspective. And uh, so when I got the job at uh, Tata Sons, in a way, uh, it helped me because I had the basic value chain, the structure, and, and the key drivers of uh, almost every industry that the group operates in. But still, the group is uh, pretty complex. It has got a history. Um, but it's got an incredible um, heritage and a sense of trust and everybody wanting you to win, a billion people rooting for you. That's the greatest thing that you can have. But the other hand, because of history, a lot of complexity. And we need to make uh, uh, very, very important transitions at this point. So the. The timing is uh, just so special. We are making transition to digital because every company in every industry is going to be an AI company and a data company. And we are making a huge transition sustainability. We are getting into electric mobility, we are getting into uh, renewable energy, solar energy, solar rooftops, carbon capture, green steel. Uh, the entire business model has to be rewired with sustainability. And then above all, the unique one, once in a time opportunity, lifetime opportunity for India, I feel, and also for people like us, is this whole supply chain rebalancing. So where supply chains have to be built for resiliency as opposed to only efficiency, and there is an alternative to China that's required. And uh, whether it is in materials, whether it is in uh, semiconductors, it's in batteries or what have you, uh, everywhere there is going to be an alternative. And I call this an India plus opportunity. Uh, we can talk about that. But I feel all of this transition is happening. So my job is to have a very aspirational agenda, get the right talent and build a strategy and see through the execution. So it's a, it's a great time. I'd, I'd like to drill down a little bit on, on these issues of supply chain resilience or trusted supply chains as, uh, because we've, <clears throat> we've learned a lot during COVID about uh, these issues of uh, trusted supply chains. And I'd like to also drill down on issues of sustainability. But before that, if I could 
get you to go back a little bit and, and uh, talk about the country, about India. Um, India, to so many people, if you say India, you get so many different uh, images um, in India. Um, I always remind people that it's a place that has biometric IDs for uh, over a billion people. That's something, by the way, in the United States we would never have been able to pull off. I have no doubt about it. If we allowed the government to do that in the United States, there was no chance. Uh, but it was a private sector and, uh, and government um, uh, partnership that, that brought that out. Uh, India is uh, a place that trains some of the very best software um, engineers uh, in your, um, your ITTs. Uh, India is a place that is actually an exporter of uh, IT. And uh, one of the things that interested uh, George W. Bush when he was governor of Texas was the diaspora of uh, India in Austin that was driving uh, this. And so uh, there is that India, obviously. And then uh, when uh, President Modi was first running for office, he said, I still have to give people basic sanitation. And so uh, in many ways, there are several Indias. So how do you think about the last 75 years of independence? And, how India has evolved and what it still has to do. And we'll, we'll get back to the business side and maybe a little geopolitics. But I, as, an, as an Indian, I'd like you to talk a little bit about, about your country. I think it's a great question and a great question to reflect on. Um, firstly, we have come a long way in 75 years. Um, just some basic numbers. Um, our population has grown four times. We were about 350 million odd people at that time. Now we are four times of that. And the life expectancy was 32 years at that time. And the literacy rate was only 12%. And oh, 12%. 12% at the time of independence, 75 years ago. And more than 50% of our economy was agriculture. There was no industries to speak of. And so on and so forth. You can and lots of statistics. But all of that has changed. Today, we represent 7% of the world economy on GDP. Then we have um, transformed our whole economy towards an industrial economy. Less than 20% of our economy is agriculture. And nobody would have predicted that we would be such a powerhouse in IT and technology. Um, because I have seen this develop and, you know, we, TCS was the first company to be set up and now we employ as an industry a very, very large number of people uh, in direct jobs and indirect jobs in the country. And also I think it has given India some serious brand power. We produce probably the largest uh, technology talent anywhere in the world. Especially this is uh, uh, further strengthened by the fact that all of them speak English. Okay, so, so there are many things that have changed. But still we have problems because we still lack basic sanitation. We still have a, a very low women employment, for example. And we, have, we lack basic healthcare services. We need to address child mortality issues. There are so many issues still to be addressed. So in our book, we talk about it. India still has two fundamental problems. One is lack of jobs, another one is lack of access. 
we still have a vast majority of the people lack access. Um, one of my friends here, Jermanjaya, uh, calls it very beautifully. India is uh, multiple different segments. There is in Europe there with 50 million of 50 million people who has an income level to zero. And then there is another 200, 300 million people, or maybe it's less than that, who have income levels of Indonesia. And then we have several hundred million people who have income levels of sub-Sahara -Sub Africa. So you need to understand where you operate. So our biggest job is to solve this inequality. We need to raise hundreds of millions of people above poverty. Having said that, in the last 10 years, we have lifted more than 250 million people out of poverty. In the last 20 years, 700 million people have got electricity. Huge progress, but huge gaps. Yes. We have an enormous opportunity because all our problems can only be solved with technology. That's, that's another plug for my book. That's right. Yes, exactly. That's why you need to go out and get the book because it's very. So let me. So in many ways, so much is expected of yeah. India. Yeah. Um, I uh, when I was both national security advisor and secretary of state, uh, we talked often about the importance of India as a uh, rising force in international politics. And a lot is expected of India in the Indo-Pacific, in the international system as a whole. Uh, can you take a moment now pulling back, or pulling out from uh, the domestic circumstances of India, how do you see um, India in the world? Uh, perhaps uh, even a little bit of tour of how you think about the geopolitics that uh, we are facing, whether it's in the Indo-Pacific, uh, where I think uh, the United States and India have made a lot of progress in terms of our, our relationship, or what we're experiencing uh, now in Europe. How do you see the, uh, the geopolitics of, of now and, so, and India's role in it? Yeah. Look, I think um, it is a, it's a very unique time in the world. The last two years have been absolutely relentless a pandemic, uh, identity wars, a lot of military conflict, even the big tech issues, cryptocurrency. I mean, almost several decades of experience all packaged, squeezed in a couple of years. So there is an enormous amount of impact. But from an economy point of view, I'll just talk about a little bit of economy, then I'll come to geopolitics. Then I'll, I'll, I'll say what, what is in store for India. I think uh, while we have gone through all of this, I believe all these things in terms of uh, geopolitical issues, adoption of digital, supply chain crisis, uh, sustainability transition is probably giving one of the best opportunities for economic growth and economic partnership um, between India and the rest of the world. And for a unique 
uh, it's a unique time for India to seize this opportunity. And I would say that the trust level and the partnership between India and US has developed very significantly in the last 10 years, maybe 15 years. For a long time, we used to talk about India and, and United States as the natural allies. It used to be a political rhetoric, the oldest democracy and the largest democracy. Uh, we are natural allies, but the trust deficit was there. And that affected the geopolitics. Um, India was post-independence uh, became a non-aligned nation and it could never get the attention of the West in terms of their defense needs and it always turned to Russia and there were people who liked Indira Gandhi, people who didn't like Indira Gandhi, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it was true that um, it's a fact, absolute fact that India has a huge dependency of um, military support from Russia for, for several years. Yes, it has reduced a little bit over the last uh, couple of decades maybe because there's more Western supply now. But I think it will play out. The current conflict, I think it will play out. I personally believe it will deepen the relationship between India and the West and more so between India and United States. While the current situation will take some time to get resolved because every country operates from the position of where they are, not from the position of where they wish they are. So it will take some time for this to resolve. But I think uh, if we can go past that, the opportunity is just enormous. And uh, I think this quad is uh, another big opportunity. Um, if we can build trusted telecom networks, trusted software which goes into these networks, trusted supply chain, not only in terms of secure supply chain, but also trusted in terms of availability, trusted in terms of not getting shut down. Um, I think it's, uh, I would say two things. I would say on the, uh, on the one side, I would say it is such a big opportunity for India and players like us, especially the Tata group being being the largest or the important business group, we have the opportunity and also have a responsibility to play big. On the other side, with all humility I would say, India can't be ignored. Mm -hmm. If you want scale, if you want to do um, things at big scale, you need to bring all those talent to work and all that workforce that's available. Um, I think we can build something special and that's going to happen, I feel. And I think this is, this is a very, very unique time. Yeah, it is, I, I would agree that it's a unique time. And, and I happen to agree with you that I think that 
um, all of the crises that we are going through, and, and we have gone through an awful lot in a very oh, yeah, short period yeah. of time. In fact, if you... The good thing is one comes after another, so yeah. you forget the first one, we catch on. Come on. <laughs> in fact, if you think about it, uh, it hasn't been that long since the financial crisis, and before that, nine, so we've, we've had a series of crises. And so I do think that the likelihood that countries that share both values and interests will move closer together, even if there are some wines in the road, uh, that that's likely to be the case. But what do we need to do to make it happen? You know, very often my students will say, will India emerge as a center for supply, for a trusted supply chain, for trusted telecom, for trusted um, software? And I say to them, that that's an analytical question, but the policy question is, what does India need to do to make sure that it emerges or takes advantage of this moment? And how, how do you see that question? See, I think uh, <clears throat> not exactly uh, the same situation, but we have been here before. It's many times uh, people have said that it's India's opportunity, okay? But it has not happened. Right. So it's natural task. Why now? Why this time? Why should we think it should happen? I think I'll say it in three or four segments. First, to me, the economic growth potential of India is totally intact. First, rising consumer class. Very, very <laughs> aspirational young India. Because of the adoption of digital technologies, uh, both in the private sector and the public sector, a huge transparency and more formalization of the economy. Mm -hmm. Because we have a huge informal economy, huge number of informal jobs, almost 73% of the jobs are informal. All of that is going to change because uh, everything is getting plat platformatized, whether it is our identifier like Aadhaar, our payment systems and what have you. And more and more platforms are under anvil. Public services delivery is going to be, and we are, we are going to launch a e-passport. TC is working with the government to, to launch a e-passport later this year. So many such things are intact. That's the first. The second one, uh, the policy reforms that have happened in the last few years, while they all have had their own um, issues, uh, a little bit problems here, a little bit problems there, and uh, not, uh, not has been smooth, but they are very far-reaching. Uh, that's the GST. It's much simpler now than when it was launched, and it'll get simpler as we go. Bankruptcy court. At Tata Group, we have picked up some fantastic companies, which were just lying around all that uh, investment was going waste. And we have turned them around and we built huge capacity. Um, divestment, Air India was going nowhere. We could pick up Air India. The inflation targeting framework, labor laws. Recently, the whole PLI, the uh, government incentives, uh, production linked incentives. So we are taking advantage of uh, advantage of that in the move towards electric mobility. Some people are getting into batteries, and 
especially focused on advanced manufacturing. I think all this is playing out and as somebody who is running business every day, we see the impact of this all playing out. The third is this whole global supply chain is a huge opportunity and the world wants it. Yeah. It's the demand is there. We got to execute. We have to come forward and do it and, and sell it to the rest of the world. But companies around the world want it. Governments around the world want it. So all these three are real drivers. What do we need to do? We need to execute. We need to execute flawlessly with speed. And our SMEs, uh, small and medium enterprises, still suffer because it's very hard to start. It's very easy to start an IT startup because it happens in Bangalore or Bombay or Delhi. The entire ecosystem is there, funding is there, all the compliance mechanisms, the right platform is there, there are enough people helping you. No such ecosystem is there for you want to be in textiles, you want to be in something else. It's very hard for that guy to get the funding, get to the regulatory complaints, permissions, approvals. We need to address that. I think the SME ecosystem is very, very critical. Second thing I would say, the kind of skills that are required, we need to develop those skills in very, very large scales because advanced manufacturing is not the same as manufacturing. It's, you need AI skills, digital skills. There are, there are other skills that are required. People have to have awareness about sustainability. So all the things that are required, um, we need to import those skills in, in real large scale. I'm, I'm, I'm talking 100 million people. I'm not talking 50 million people or even 5 million people. I'm talking really 100 million people. And that is an opportunity, it can be done, because otherwise people think that everybody has to go for a tertiary education. I think we can divert large number of people after their secondary education into skill development. And we'll create jobs, because we have to create 100 million jobs this decade. We've got 1 million people coming into the workforce every month, yeah. wanting jobs. 1 million, yeah. <laughs> so, That's a real dem demographic advantage, by yeah, the way. Yeah, uh, a lot of countries would give anything so to see that demographic, yes. You got to see it yeah. as a positive. Yeah. So I think to me, uh, there is uh, there is real aspiration there, and there is uh, policy framework there. Yes, more things will be required. Then the third one is uh, it's really a demand globally, but we need to address skills. We need to address SMEs. We need to address execution. Approvals have to happen. E execution across the government and the private sector. There are many in, in the United States who think we could do a better job also of the trans, uh, transition from secondary education into the workplace uh, rather than just always focusing on tertiary education. I think all developed and developing societies are looking at this. But I have to ask you, um, one of the, you have excellent demographics, women yeah. uh, work only about 25% in, in paid work. Uh, that's a demographic that I would think uh, you would want to encourage into the workforce. How do you think about the, that, that X factor of uh, women? Yeah, I, I think that's... Especially uh, given that you've got some very powerful women in your yeah. uh, historical 
uh, pantheon? Uh, yeah. I think it's a very, very important question. The, the, uh, the problem is not only it's uh, 23%, the problem is it has been coming down, mm. okay, which is a disaster. Mm-hmm. So I think fundamentally um, uh, there are a few reasons why uh, this happens. First of all, women in India pretty much carry the entire burden of the family. They are expected to take care of the children. They are expected to take care of the elderly and then everything in between. So that's one issue we have. Second thing is mobility in a safe manner. If you have to go everywhere, it's expensive, they can't afford it. So as a result, they get very restricted in the proximity around where they are living if they have to find a job. Otherwise, it becomes extremely difficult both from an economic point of view and also from a time point of view. Because they got to do other things, they got to get back home and so on and so forth. And they are not that mobile because of these reasons. Um, but I think these things can be solved if you really look at the opportunity to create a fantastic care system. It will create jobs on the one hand, on the other hand it will give that space that is required both for children and for the elderly. We have to see care as a very massive industry because of the size of the opportunity. That is very, very critical. The second thing is, we have got to build transparency uh, in our employment program. If if it's going to be expensive for them to safely travel, either the employers has to pay for it or we have got to figure out a way by which that gets that gets taken care, not that the woman has to pay for it. The third thing is, also there are a lot of women who are successful, who are doing, our electronics company employs 80% women, and TCS employs 36% women who are in across, across levels. They're very, very successful. Their story needs to be told. We need to bring it out, bring it out. Otherwise, people keep talking negative. Yes. There's a lot of positive stories, very successful stories. So you've got to get the word out there. Yeah. Show, sh- showcase them. It's important, too, so that girls yeah. see it and so, recognize yeah. that there are these pathways yeah. for them as they, as yeah. they grow up. Um, I'm going to turn to the audience in just a moment, but I want to ask you um, a question about sustainability. And uh, as a way to get into the question of sustainability, what excites you about technology um, and the possibilities? And uh, you mentioned education, you mentioned others, but if you could talk a little bit about sustainability in particular, but then also, uh, just as you look out at the the world out there of technology, what's exciting to you? I think it's uh, (laughs) it's the best time for for the people to graduate, um, go, go to school and graduate, and I mean, it's just uh, the options are just incredible. Um, because we are seeing um, 
technology in every industry. I think uh, AI and, and, and deep tech, I think the advancement are going to be astronomical. Every year new things are going to happen. Um, then you look at the implication of AI into whether it is uh, electric mobility, whether it is in terms of storage, in terms of foods, um, biosciences. I mean, the, the biggest disruption is going to happen in, in healthcare and pharma, pharma industry. Look at this whole mRNA stuff, which yes. happened within like that in, in, in less than 12 months. I mean, it's just incredible, incredible time to um, getting, in, getting into the world of, uh, of uh, employment. So I, I feel uh, uh, there are a lot of things uh, to be excited about and uh, sustainability is going to force innovation because I feel it's two trains coming in the opposite direction. I think uh, we all have to move fast. We are work going towards sustainability, but the deadline Whatever we think is the deadline now will keep coming forward because the societal pressure, the Gen Z pressure is going to be just enormous. People are not going to accept. Um, people are going to say that you could, you could get a vaccine in 12 months. Why are you taking 50 years to, to, to make the transition, energy transition? So I think Energy transition is a, is a big thing. We as a group have put a goal of 2045 to become net zero. We have a huge uh, transition to make. In auto, we are getting into electric mobility. We have already produced uh, the first set of hydrogen buses, but they're not, they're not commercially competitive. But we have the technology now, and we are making transition into solar, both uh, industrial scale and also consumer, we think we can put more than 50 million homes in India on uh, solar rooftop. Then we are into solar pumps. Then we are into carbon capture. We have to do green hydrogen. Uh, we have to do uh, green steel using hydrogen or any other technology. So our, our um, goals are, one is, uh, based on the fact that we have to make this transition and we believe sustainability transition is the biggest economic opportunity uh, in addition to it's a must do. And we want to be honest and transparent in our planning, clearly knowing that there are things we don't know, there are things we know. And we have a firm belief that all the entrepreneurs and uh, faculty and researchers and people, people working in places like Stanford and MIT and other places and IITs and startups are going to come up with so many new technologies that uh, if we think something is going to take 10 years, if we can be open and work with them, it will definitely happen faster. Well, that's a challenge to the IITs and to Stanford. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's uh, get questions. If you would go to the microphone, please, uh, so that we can hear your question. Uh, Chase is bringing it down. Uh, there you go. And if you would just identify yourself. Hi, uh, my name is Harshit Kohli. I'm from India, and I'm extremely honored to have, uh, have the chance to see you. 
Tata is uh, my favorite company. <laughs> I've uh, grown up. I was interestingly born the year India liberalized and globalized. And uh, so, I mean, just the way the co company has evolved is something that is a part of our day-to-day -day lives. Um, I worked in agriculture in India, uh, where I was basically enabling farmers to grow high-value fruits and vegetables in greenhouses. And you spoke about technology and, uh, and the, how that's needed for growth. And um, I believe that even today, education and this knowledge gap is the biggest impediment. And uh, India needs to accumulate productive knowledge, to, which is not limited to engineering, but a more, much wider interdisciplinary education that we do not have right now. I mean, to put it in simple words, India needs several Stanford universities. I want to hear your thoughts on the public and private approaches to that kind of education and what we need to get there. Thank you. I think uh, you are spot on in terms of uh, um, on the need for such uh, scale and the type of uh, interdisciplinary uh, research. I'm always fascinated how they do it here. Um, it's so hard to do the uh, interdisciplinary, even in an organization, to when we are driving change within the group, to put a cross-functional team between steel and motors and power, it takes a lot. Okay, it's not because people are running in a direction. Okay, you got you got to tell them every time you got to look like this and then keep running. It's a, it's a, it's doing inter interdisciplinary thing in in is always a big challenge. But I think um, it's just fascinating how places like Stanford do it. Um, we need that. The first step is that now the government has given deadline for all uh, institutions to become multidisciplinary. Uh, every IIT is getting into not being a tech institute alone. They have to get into liberal arts, they get into medicine, they get into law, they get into... So all the big big schools, prestigious schools are all becoming multidisciplinary, but, but as you know, it's a long game. It's not going to happen. To build an institution like this takes several decades, if not centuries. So. Thank you. Yes. Hi, uh, I'm Salman, and I'm from Pakistan. First of all, I'd like to say that I'm extremely honored to be in your presence. Um, always been inspired by the Tata Group's impact. And I would like to say that India and Pakistan are so similar in terms of the culture and people. And I've been so inspired by the tremendous growth of India. So what is your advice for Pakistan? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> let me say, let me say it's beyond my paycheck. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I feel uh, in a way it's, uh, it's sad that, uh, you know, um, over several decades, we're not working together. Uh, I made a trip to Pakistan um, when Vajpayee was the Prime Minister and General Musharraf was the President um, with a view, with a set of people from the IT industry to see whether we can explore doing something in the tech in, in, in Pakistan. For a variety of reasons, it didn't go anywhere. But I think um, um, 
there is a huge opportunity for the countries in the region to synergize and, and work together because we will create a bigger economy. It's not, it's not that hard, uh, but I don't understand why it doesn't happen. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Another challenge for us, yes. Sharon oh. yes. Gurumurthy from INTA. Uh, Sri Chandra, uh, quick question. Um, so many of us did our undergraduate in India, came over to the US, did our graduate program, and made our career, multiple decades of our career in the United States. If we need to transition and uh, participate in the resurgence of uh, Indian economy and Indian business, could you tell us what is the best way for us to integrate ourselves with Indian business environment? What is the big differences? What is the big similarities between business environment in the US and India? And how can we integrate well with the business environment in India? Thank you. I think it is a huge opportunity. I think one of India's uh, uh, biggest strength uh, with the US is the Indian diaspora here and the number of people who are, uh, who are here um, in, in doing some incredible work, uh, top talent. And I can tell you, um, every one of our initiatives when we are now launching, uh, we are able to attract some of the top-notch people uh, from India who are in very good positions, but um, the opportunity to create something in India in a big scale attracts them. Um, we are getting a lot of interest, a lot of people reaching out, so which is a good thing. But I think um, um, the Indian companies need to reach out more here, uh, both with the American companies for partnership and also for getting some of the talent back. Uh, because what you need is leadership. Uh, there are a lot of engineers out there who can do most of the work, but still that vision and leadership. That's what the US companies have been super successful. And the other thing India needs to do is to figure out a way of promoting research. We are not investing in research. We should be creating big research institutions. And we've got to make it worthwhile for researchers to do research. Otherwise, they they start with research and then give up research because they don't make money or it's not attractive, it's not going anywhere, it's not getting funded. So from a funding perspective, uh, both corporate research companies like us have to invest a lot more in research and also the universities. And we've got to figure out uh, that we had again learned from, from, from the US corporates and, and, and US schools. We've got to do that. Yeah. Maybe two-way street, we can uh, yeah. fix our immigration problem too, and we can go oh, both I agree. ways. Yes, right. <laughs> I agree. Yes. Uh -huh. Hi, good evening. I'm, uh, we Dab always end up talking whenever we, sorry, yeah. either immigration problem or a data privacy problem. Yeah. <laughs> so everything right. else gets left behind. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yes. Let's take your time. <laughs> um, uh, hi, I'm Dhaval and Shah. I'm a Stanford alumni, computer science, and currently doing a machine learning AI startup. Thank you very much for this wonderful conversation and evening and sharing so much uh, valuable information. In fact, um, my father had a company that used to work with Tata in Nelco when that was Ratan Tata's first project. Um, so the question I had was uh, about uh, the economy, right? So in US, as you know, interest rates had been going down last 20, 30 years, and there's a, been a relatively a, quite a booming period. Now the interest rates are going up and there's a lot of inflation. So how, how are you reading that and how are you uh, adjusting in India? And maybe you want to share a little about the uniqueness of the Tata culture 
like Tata just stands out, right, in culture in India versus like Reliance or other companies. So it'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> On the first question, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not an economist, but uh, it's so unusual uh, time that uh, India's growth rate is predicted to be higher than all other nations and our inflation is predicted to be lower than all the Western nations. And I asked Rupa, um, has it ever happened before? She came back and said, this happened once before, that was 1980. So when, um, when the US inflation was higher um, than Indian inflation and so on. So it's a very, uh, um, we got we got to watch this. So I I don't know what else to say, but we got to keep the from the Indian perspective, we got to realize this growth, and we got to keep the inflation down. So how we are, how we are going to do that is uh, uh, is uh, something to watch. I think the Tata culture question um, it's uh, so hard to explain. We don't know. Uh, I would, I would just say that the longevity uh, of that culture, which was ingrained in early 1900s, uh, it has just stayed. Uh, for example, if there's a COVID, you don't have to put a corporate program to say that we, what can we do as a group? Before you organize your first meeting, already people are out there. Uh, companies are already allocating money and people are out there uh, doing what they have to do. And how does it happen? I also wonder, but but it is there. My our job and my job is to make sure that we preserve it and we don't lose it. We continue to deserve that, live to deserve that trust that uh, that has been created. We have uh, several questions and not much time. So if you can make your question brief, yes, ma'am. Yeah, hi, uh, my name is Asha, Stanford alum also, and uh, I'm a venture capitalist, have been investing mostly in the Bay Area for the last 25 years and have been dabbling in some Indian startups now for the last uh, about five to six years. And uh, uh, I find that there's an elephant in the room, Mr. Chandra, that the, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge that I face when I invest in India is the bureaucracy. And uh, the uh, one of, you know, I don't know how exactly one can sort of, you know, India wants to grow. India wants to partner with the U.S. Modi government wants to partner with the U.S. Modi government is pro-U.S., but the bureaucracy is not. Bureaucracy is still steeped in a very socialist culture, has deep ties with the Soviet Union, is still, you know, ex-Soviet Union. It's still, it's, it, it gets threatened. It's, it's, its power is threatened by uh, our current flirtation with the U.S. And I, I was wondering if that's something you can address. I know it's a sensitive topic, but it's, I think it's an elephant in the room. And if, like for example, we have, two, we have 2,900 uh, clauses right now, compliance clauses, which have imprisonment clauses. So the U.S. companies are getting scared right now. I'm trying to get an Apple data center into UP. And people are saying, we don't want to set this. We'll rather go to Vietnam because you know, there are imprisonment clauses. Thank you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> wow. That was, that was a one hell of a question. See, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, uh, go as far as uh, you went on that view. Um, I would acknowledge that uh, we have, we don't have a consistent experience. We have things sometimes happen 
things sometimes goes in a loop in bureaucracy. But first time I'm hearing anyone say that it's directed towards uh, US companies or US-based uh, startups. I, at least I would tend to think and I hope I'm right that that's not true. But we have uh, bureaucracy, that's true. And everyone is not open. And it happens for multiple reasons because um, they have done uh, all their work in a particular way and there is a huge change initiative required if you want to change the entire bureaucracy. Um, governments, I don't know whether they do any HR transformation. So the second is also sometimes they make a decision and then they get in trouble. So sometimes people don't want to make decision. So it could be that, but I think um, they listen better now and things can be solved. Um, so I won't go f as far as, uh, but I'll take this message. <laughs> That's all I can do. <laughs> Let me suggest I'll ask uh, each of you to just state your questions. We'll try to wrap yeah, it up with that. So if you could do that, yes. Sure. Hi, I'm Shub. Uh, my question is, how does Tata Group see itself in the future working towards giving access to individuals who lack basic supplies? And as they're positioning themselves in terms of working with like rural parts of India and people who don't have access to these supplies, what are the unique challenges that are arising? Thank you. So next question. I've, I'll keep track here. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm Diane. I've been involved with Tata. We had engineers in 1980 that I was managing from the Tata group, so I understand their consulting. But I have a, a more cultural issue. You talked about in order to get more women in the workforce, you needed to have safe transportation for them that they could afford. But don't you really have to worry that all women should feel safe when they travel in India? Otherwise, you're just dealing with one class. So it's not giving them money. It's maybe doing more of a cultural change. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm not going to take extra questions here. There were two gentlemen lined up there at the time, and you two. And I'm sorry, I don't have, I'm not able to take any further. Yes, right ahead. Uh, hi, my name is Sudarshan. And um, I just had a more personal question. I'm curious what experiences, what mentors, what books were really valuable for you during your undergrad years that have served you well throughout your career, that have really set the foundation for you to be successful later in life? Excellent, yes. Hi, uh, my name is Siddhartha, um, namaste. Um, I had a quick question about ESG. Um, and so and there's been sort of an explosion of ESG-based investing, and India's kind of seen that as well. So as far as you're concerned as the head of a corporation, how are ESG standards determined? Like how, how are they set? Who sets the ethics and values that, especially the S part of that ESG is based on? Great. If I could suggest that you close with the question about mentors, because that's a very interesting uh, okay, question sorry. for you, but perhaps addressing the issue of rural India, women and safety, and then ESG, and then we'll come back to what inspired you. I think the, um, the rural question, uh, fundamentally the access has to be created by um, technology. Uh, it's fundamentally what we have written in the book, uh, Digital Nation. It's got three components. One, in terms of uh, 
what everyone calls as digital. So making available everything through digital means, uh, supported by a huge digital infrastructure that's available throughout the country. The third portion is how do you use AI to, to empower people who are very low skilled so that they get access. Whether it is to perform a work or whether it's providing healthcare or whether it's providing education and so on. So it's, it has to be technology. That, that's the way we are imagining. People have gotten used to using technology now, whether it's shopping, whether it's studying, whether it's um, what have you. So the biggest uh, access solution is reliance technology. The with, second question well, is... Women, women, women and safety. Well, I mean, I agree with you. I was just uh, answering um, very parochially to the question, what prevents uh, women employment? Uh, I was trying to come up with the two or three things that we need to address, but I agree with you. It's uh, safety is fundamental. It has to be that everywhere in a, in a nation like us. And I mean, in all big cities throughout the world, I mean, uh, but when I came here, you know, when I went to LA, I'm in LA downtown, I was uh, scared, <laughs> right? I was uh, scared in New York, New York in the, in the early, early, early days. So these things happen everywhere, but this needs to be addressed. Most importantly, safety for everyone, safety for women in the country is so fundamental. That's a cultural transformation. And, and, and whenever things happen, the best way to do it is to punish very severely. We can't take, uh, we can't take years to punish the guilty. So I think I, I, I entirely agree with you. I'm not, I'm not in disagreement. The ESG, what was the question? It was more... Uh, the question is how do you see ESG? It's, it's, as I said before, it's already answered the question. It's so fundamental. I think it's a big business opportunity. It's a must do. It has to be uh, in the DNA of every company, but it has to be done in such a way that ESG is integrated into the business model. You can't create a department of ESG, then it will fail. So there is a sustainability officer and everyone else thinks that he's going to take care of it. That will be a recipe for disaster. I feel uh, like brand has to be into integrated into the company. HR has to be integrated like that. ESG has to be integrated into the business model of the company. And, and, and we've got to make the transition um, where we make money by, by new energy. And last, I think, uh, I, I, there's no single, single um, person, but I have learned from so many people, um, both at work and off, outside work. My biggest influence in my life, my mother. Uh, I, I still feel that, I mean, probably many people feel about their mother, but I feel that she was very special and uh, according to me, I have never seen anyone else who can be so calm and work all the time. She was the most hardworking person I've seen and always calm at any point in time and hand handle any kind of pressure. So, but I've learned from a lot of people, a lot of people, in my bosses in TCS, my coworkers, uh, fellow runners, sports people. Um, um, I mean, so many people have impacted my life and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yes. Thank you very much. If you would join me in thanking Chandra for this wonderful conversation. It's a great, it's a great honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes.
Yes. Dear Secretary, it was such a great honor uh, to be with you on stage um, and have this opportunity to speak to uh, people at Stanford and, and in the Bay Area community. It's a unique, unique opportunity. I enjoyed it and uh, hopefully I, I gave some answers right. Thank you. You look wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.